everybody, and this week we are reading the Chronicles of Narnia, book one, The Magician's Nephew, chapter 11. Diggory and his uncle Andrew are both in trouble, and chapter 12, Strawberry's Adventure. Just a quick announcement, there is another bonus chapter coming out tomorrow. When I mean bonus chapter, you kind of have to read it, it's just, it comes out before the week is over. Without further ado, let's read chapter 11. Chapter 11. Diggory and his uncle are both in trouble. You may think the animals were very stupid not to see at once that Uncle Andrew was the same kind of creature as the two children and the cabbie. But you must remember that the animals knew nothing about clothes. They thought that Polly's frock and Diggory's Norfolk suit and the cabbie's bowler hat were as much part of them as their fur and feathers. They wouldn't have known even that those three were all of the same kind if they hadn't spoken to them. And if Strawberry had not seemed to think so. And Uncle Andrew was a great deal taller than the children and a good deal thinner than the cabbie. He was all in black except for his white waistcoat. Not very white by now. And the great gray mop of his hair. And now very wild indeed. He didn't look to them like anything he'd seen in the three other humans. So it was very natural they would be puzzled. Worst of all, he didn't seem to be able to talk. He, try, he had tried to when the bulldog spoke to him, or he thought, first snarled, and then growled at him. He held out a shaking hand and gasped, good doggy, then poor old fellow, but the beast could not understand him any more than he could understand them. They could not hear any words, only a vague sizzling noise. Perhaps it was just as well they didn't, for no dog I have ever knew, least of all talking dog in Narnia, likes being called a good doggy then, any more than you would like being called my little man. Uncle Andrew dropped down in a dead faint. There, said a warthog, it's only a tree. I always thought so. Remember, they had never yet seen a faint or even a fall. The bulldog, who had been sniffling Uncle Andrews all over, raised his head and said, It's an animal. Certainly an animal. And probably the same kind as those other ones. I wouldn't see that, said one of the bears. It's an animal. Wouldn't just roll over like that. We're animals and we don't roll over. We stand up, like this. He rose to his hind legs, took a step backwards, tripped over a low branch, and fell flat on his back. The third joke, the third joke, the third joke, said the jack on a great excitement. I still think it's a sort of tree, said the warthog. If it's a tree, said the other bear, there might be a bee's nest in it. I'm sure it's not a tree, said the badger. I had a sort of idea it was trying to speak before it toppled over. That was only the wind in its branches, said the warthog. You surely don't mean, said the jackdaw to the badger. That you think it's a talking animal? It doesn't say any words. And, and yet you know, said the elephant, the she-elephant, of course, her husband, as you may remember, he had been called away by a slam. And yet you know, it might be an animal of some kind. Might we whittish lump at the end of the sword of paste? And couldn't these holes be eyes and a mouth? No nose, of course, the very 
then, but then, <clears throat> one mustn't be narrow-minded. Very few of us have what you would exactly call the nose. She squinted down the length of her own tongue with pardonable pride. I object to that remark very strongly, said the bulldog. The elephant is quite right, said the pear. I'll tell you what, said the donkey brightly. Perhaps in an animal that can't talk but thinks it can. Can it be made to stand up, said the elephant thoughtfully. She took the limp form of Uncle Andrew gently in her trunk and sat him up on end, upside down. Unfortunately, so that two half sovereigns, three half crowns, and a sixpence fell out of his pocket. But it was no use. Uncle Andrew merely collapsed again. There, said several voices, it isn't an animal at all. It's not alive. I tell you, it is an animal, said the bulldog. Smell for yourself. Smelling isn't everything, said the elephant. Why? said the bulldog. If a fellow can't trust his nose, what is, he what is he to trust? Well, perhaps his brain, perhaps? I object to that remark very strongly, said the bulldog. <coughs> well, we must do something about it, said the elephant, because it may be the evil, and it must be shown to Alvin. Uh, I mean, it must be shown to Slan. What do you think? Is it an animal or something of the tree kind? Tree, tree, said a dozen voices. Very well, said the elephant. Then, if it's a tree that wants to be planted, we must dig a hole. The two moles settled that part of the business pretty quickly. There was some dispute as to which way up Uncle Andrew must be put into the hole. He had a very narrow escape of being put in head foremost. Several animals said his legs must be the branches, and therefore the gray, fluffy thing, they meant his head, must be the root. But some others said that, that he forked the end of him was the muddier, so that it spread out more, and the roots ought to do so. So finally, he was planted right way up, and then when they patted him down, then they, they had patted down the earth, it came up above his knees. It looks dreadfully withered, said the donkey. Of course it wants watering, said the elephant. I think I might say, meaning no offense to anyone present, that perhaps for that sort of work, my kind of nose... I objected to that remark very strongly, said the bulldog. But the elephant walked quietly to the river, filled her trunk with water, and came back to attend Uncle Andrew. The Saget animal went on doing his still gallons of water had been squirt squirted all over him and the water was running out of the shirts of his frock coat as he had been for a bath with all his clothes on in the end it revived him he awoke from his faint what awakening it was but we must leave him to think over his wicked deed if he was likely to do anything so sensible and turned down to more important things. Slop Strawberry trotted on with Diggory on his back till the noise of the other animals died away. And now the little group of Aslan and his chosen counselors was quite close. Diggory knew that he could possibly break into a solemn a meeting, but there he needed to do so. At a word from Aslan, 
the he elephant, the ravens, and all the rest of them drew aside. Degree slipped off the horse and found himself face to face with a slan. And a slan was bigger and more beautiful and more brightly golden and more terrible than he had thought. He dared not to look into the great eyes. Please, Mr. Lion Slan, sir, said Degree. Could you, may I, please, will you give me some magic fruit of this country to make mother well? He'd been desperately hoping that the lion would say yes. He, he had been horribly afraid if he might say no. But he, but he was taken aback when it didn't either. This is the boy, said Al Aslan, looking not at the agree, but at his counselor. This is the boy who did it. Oh dear, thought the agree, what have I done now? Son of Adam, said the lion, there is an evil witch abroad in my new land of Narnia. Tell these good beasts how she came here. A dozen different things that he might say flashed through Diggory's mind, but he had the sense to say nothing but the exact truth. I brought her a slan, he answered in a low voice. For what purpose? I wanted to get out of my own world back into her home. So I thought by taking her back into her own place. How did she come in to be into your world, son of Adam? By, by magic. The lion said nothing, and Digri knew that he had been not told enough. That he had not told enough. It was my uncle, Aslan. Said he said he sent us out of our own world by magic rings. Uh, at least I had it to go because he sent Polly first, and then we met the witch in a place called Charn, and she just held on to us when you met the witch, said Aslan in a low voice, with the threat with a growl in it. She woke up, said Diggory wretchedly, and then turning very white, I mean, I woke her, because I wanted to know what would happen if I struck a bell. Polly doesn't want to. It wasn't her fault. I, I fought her. I know I shouldn't have but I think I was a bit enchanted by the writing on the bell. Do you? asked the slan, who was still speaking, very low and very deep. No, said Diggory. I see now I wasn't. I was only pretending. There was a long pause, and Diggory was thinking all the time. <sighs> I've spoiled everything. There is no chance of getting anything from Mother now. When the lion spoke again, it was not to Diggory. You see, friends, he said, that before the now clean world I gave you is seven hours old, a force of evil has already entered it, waked and brought hither by the side of Adam. The beasts, even Strawberry, all turned their eyes on Diggory till they felt him. He wished the ground would swallow him up. Do not be cast down, said Aslan, still speaking to the beast. Beast, evil will come off that evil, but it is still a long way off. I will see to it that he that the falls upon myself. In the meantime, let us take such order, for that for many a hundred years yet this shall be a merry land and a merry world. And as Adam's race has done the harm. Adam's race will help heal it.
Draw near, you two. The last words were spoken to Polly and the cabbie, who had now arrived. Apolly, all eyes and mouth, was staring at Slan and holding the cabbie's hand rather tightly. The cabbie gave one glance at the line and he took off his bowler hat. No one had yet seen him without it. When it was off, he looked younger and nicer. He looked more like a countryman and less like a London cabman. Son, said the slant to the cabbie, I have known you long. Do you know me? Well, no, sir, said the cabbie. Least ways, not an ordinary matter of speaking. Yet I feel somehow, if I make so free as Al we've met before. It is well, said the lion. You better think, you better than you think you know, and you shall live to know me better yet. How does this land please you? It's a fair treat, sir, said the cabbie. Would you like to live here always? Well, you see, sir, I'm a married land man, said the cabbie. If my wife was here, neither of us would ever want to go back to London. I reckon we're both country folks, really. Aslan threw up a shaggy head, opened his mouth, and uttered a long, single note. Not very loud, but full of power. Polly's heart jumped in her body when she heard it. She felt sure that it was a call, and that no one, and anyone who said it, that call and wants to obey it and what's more would be able to obey it however many worlds and ages lay between and so she was filled with wonder she was not really astonished or shocked when all of a sudden a young woman with a kind honest face stepped out of nowhere and stood beside her polly knew at once it was the cabbie's wife fetched out of her world not by any tiresome magic rings, but quickly, simply, and sweetly as a bird flies to its nest. The young woman had apparently been in the middle of a washing day, for as she wore an apron, her sleeves were rolled up to the elbow, and there were soap suds on her hand. If she had time to put on her good clothes, her... her best hat that had imitation trees on it, she would have looked dreadful. As it, as it was, she looked rather nice. Of course, she, of course she thought she was dreaming. That was why she didn't rush across to her husband and ask him what had happened on earth happened to them both. But when she looked at the light, she didn't feel quite sure it was a dream. Yet for some reason, she did not appear to be very frightened. Then she dropped a little half curtsy, as some country girls to still know how to do in, the, in those days. After that, she, and she put her hand in the cabbies and, start, and stood there looking around her a little shyly. My children, said Aslan, fixing his eyes on both of them, you are to be the first king and the first queen of Narnia. The cabbie dropped opened his mouth in astonishment, and his wife turned very red. We shall rule and name all these creatures and do justice among them and protect them from their enemies when enemies arrived. When this enemy will arise, for there is an evil witch in this world. The, sw the cabbie swallowed hard two or three times and cleared his throat. 
begging your pardon, pardon, sir, he said. And thank you very much, I'm sure. Which my missus does the same. But I ain't no sort of chap for a job like that. I never as much education, you see. Well, said Slan, can you use a spade and plow and raise food out of the earth? Yes, sir, I can do a bit of that work. Being brought up to it like. Can you rule these creatures kindly and fairly? Remembering they are not slaves like the dumb beasts of the world you were born in, but talking beasts and free subjects. I see that, sir, replied the cabbie. I tried to do the square thing by them all. And would you? And would you bring up your children and grandchildren to do the same? It wouldn't be up. It wouldn't. It be up to me to try, sir. I do my best, wouldn't we, Nelly? And you would not have favorites either among your own children or among the other creatures, or let any other let any hold under another and use it hardly. I never abide such things going on, sir. And that's the truth. I'd give him for what I ought caught him for it, said the cabbie. Although th this conversation in his voice was getting slower and richer, more like a country voice, he must have been a boy and less like the sharp, quick voice of a cockney. And if enemies come against the, against the land, for enemies will arise, and there was war, would you be the first in, in the charge and last in the retreat? Well, sir, said the cabbie very slowly, a chap don't exactly know till he's been tried. I dare say I might turn out ever for such an soft un, soft un, soft un. Never did go fighting except with my fists. I'd try. That is, I'd hope I try to do my bit. Then, said Islan, you have done all that a king should do. Your coronation will be held presently, and you and your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren will be blessed. And some will be the kings of Narnia, and others will be the kings of Archenland, which lies yonder over the southern mountains. And you, little daughter, here, he turned to Polly, are welcome. Have you forgiven the boy for the violence he did to you? In the hall of images, dis in a desolate pace of cursed charm. Yes, Islan, we've made it up. That is well, said Islan. Now for the boy himself. So that was the end of chapter 11. And next up is Strawberry's Adventure, which is chapter 12. Man, it is really getting juicy. Chapter 12, Strawberry's Adventure. Diggory kept his mouth very tight shut. He had been growing, he had been growing more and more uncomfortable. He hoped that whatever happened, he wouldn't blub or do something ridiculous. Son of Adam, said Aslan. Are you ready to undo the wrong that you have done to my sweet country of Narnia on the very day of its birth? Well, I don't see what I can do, said Diggory. You see, the queen, the queen ran away. 
And I asked, are you ready? Said the lion. Yes, said Diggory. He had hoped for a second some wild idea of saying, I will try to help you if you promise to help my mother. But I realized in, in time that the lion was not at all the sort of person no, one could try to bar make bargains with. But when he had said yes, he had thought of his mother, and he had thought of the great hopes she had had, and how they were all dying away. And a lump came down his throat, and tears in the eyes, and he blurted out, Oh, please, please, won't you can't give up something that you, something you can give me that will something like your mother? Up till then, he had looking at the lion's great feet and huge claws on them. Now, in despair, he looked up at his face. He had what, he, what he saw surprised him as much as, as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and, and wonders of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that he felt as the lion must really be sorry about his mother than himself. My son, my son, said Slan, I know grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. But I have to think of hundred years in the life of Narnia. The witch whom you brought into this world will come back to Narnia again. But I need not be yet. It is my wish to plant Narnia Plant in Narnia a tree that you and I dare to approach, and this tree will protect Narnia from her for many, many years. Stilos land will have a long, bright morning before any clouds go over the sun. You must get me the seed from which the tree is to grow. Yes, sir, said Diggory. He didn't know how it would, was to be done, but he felt quite sure now that he would be able to do it. The lion drew a deep breath, stooped its head even lower, and gave him a lion's kiss. At once, Diggory felt that new strength and courage had gone to him. Dear son, said, said Islam, I will tell you what you must do. Turn and look to the west, and tell me what you see. I see terribly big mountains, Islam, said Diggory. I see this river coming down cliffs in a waterfall. And beyond this cliff, there are high green hills with forest. And beyond those are higher ranges that almost look black. And then, far, far away, there are big snowy mountains all heaped up together like the pictures of the Alps. And behind those, there is nothing but sky. You see well, said the lion. Now the land of Narnia ends where the waterfall comes down. And once you've reached the top of the cliffs, you will be out of Narnia and into the western wild. You must make a journey through those mountains till you find a green valley with a blue lake in it, walled around by mountains of white ice. And at the end of the lake, there's a steep green hill. On the top of that hill, there is a garden. And in the center of the garden, there's a tree. Pluck an apple, from that tree and bring it back to me. Yes, sir, said Diggory again. He had the least idea of, of how he would climb the cliff, cliff and find his way among all the mountains. But he 
but he didn't like to say that for fear. It would sound like making excuses. But he did say, oh, I hope it's land you are not in a hurry. I shan't be able to get there and back very quickly. Little son of Adam, you shall have help, said Eslan. He turned to the horse who had been standing quietly beside him all this time, switching, swishing his tail to keep the flies off, and listening, and listening with his head on one side as if the conversation would have been a little difficult to understand. My dear, said Eslan to the horse, would you like to be a winged horse? You should have seen how the horse shook its mane and out how its nostrils widened, and each little tap it gave the ground one back hoof. Clearly, it would be very much to be a horse, but it only said, If you wish, Aslan, if you really mean, I don't know why you should it be me. I'm not a very clever horse. Be winged! Be the father of all flying horses, roared Aslan in a voice that shook the ground. Your name is Fledge. The horse shied, just as, as might have shied in the old miserable days when it pulled a handsome. Then it roared. It strained his back, neck back, as if there was a fly biting his shoulders and it wanted to scratch them. And then, just as the beasts had burst out of the earth. There burst out from the shoulders of Fledge wings that spread and grew larger than eagles, larger than swans, larger than angels' rings in church windows. The feather shone chestnut color and copper color. He gave a great sweep with them and leaped into the air. Twenty feet above Aslan, and Diggory he snorted, neighed, and curveted. And then, after circling once around them, he dropped to the earth, with all four hoofs together. Looking awkward and surprised, he was extremely pleased. Is it good, Fledge? said Aslan. It is very good, Aslan, said Fledge. Will you carry this little son of Adam to your back to the mountain valley you spoke of? What? Now? At once? said Diggory. Or Fudge, as must now as we must now call him. Hurrah! Come on, little one. I've had things like you on my back before, long a long ago, where there's green fields and sugar. When there is green fields and sugar. What are the two dogs of wheat east whispering about, said Aslan, turning very suddenly to Polly and the cabby's wife, who had in fact had been making friends. If you please, sir, said Queen Helen, for that is what Nellie's cabin wife now was. I think the little girl would love to go too, if it weren't no trouble. What does Fudge say about that? asked the lion. Oh, I don't mind too. Not when they're little ones. But I hope the elephant doesn't want to come as well. The elephant had no such wish, and the new king of Narnia helped both children up. That is, he gave Diggory a rough heave and set Polly as gently and daintily on the horse's back as if, if she were, 
were made of China and might break. A sheet were made of China and might break. There they were strawberry, fledged, I should say. This is a rum go. Don't fly too hard, says Slan. Don't try to go over the tops of the great ice mountains. Go go look out for the valleys, the greenest places, and fly through them. There will be an, a way through. And now, be gone with my blooding. Blessing. Oh, Fledge, said Diggory, leaning forward to pat the horse's glossy back. This is fun. Hold on to me tight, Polly. The, the next moment, the country dropped away beneath them and, and whirled around as Fledge, like a huge piz- pigeon, circled once or twice over before sitting off on his long westwards flight. Looking down, Polly could hardly see the qu- king or the queen, and even a slant himself was just a bright yellow spot on the green grass. Soon, the wind was in their faces, and Fledge's wings settled down to a steady beat. All Narnia, many-colored with lawns and walks and heather, and different sorts of trees, lay spread out below them. The river, the river, the river, winding through it like a ribbon of quicksilver. They are, they could already see over the tops of the low hills, which lay northward on their right. Beyond those hills was a great moorland that jet that sloped gently up to the, and up to the horizon. On their left, the mountains were much higher. But every now and then there was a gap when you could see between the steep pine woods and a glimpse of the southern lands that lay beyond them, looking blue and far away. That'll be where Archenland is, said Polly. Yes, but look ahead, said Diggory. For now, a great barrier of cliffs rose above them, and they're almost dazzled by the sunlight dancing on the great waterfall which the river roars and sprinkles down onto Narnia itself, from the high western land in which it rises. They're flying so high already that the thunder of those falls could only just be heard as a small, thin sound. But they were not high enough to fly over the top of the cliffs. We'll have to do a bit of zigzagging here, said Fledge. Hold on tight. He began flying to and fro, getting higher at each turn. The air grew colder, and they heard the call of eagles far below them. I say, look back, look behind, said Polly. There they could see the whole valley of Narnia stretched up to where, just before the eastern horizon, there is a gleam of the sea. And now they are so high that they could see tiny looking jagged mountains appearing beyond the northwest moors and plains of what looked like sand far in the south. I wish we had someone to tell that's what all these places are, said Diggory. I don't suppose they're anywhere yet, said Polly. I mean, there's no one there and nothing happening, but the world will only begin today. No, but people will get there, said Diggory. I mean, they'll have histories, you know. Well, a jolly good thing they don't have now, said Polly, because nobody can be made to learn it. Battles and dates and all that rot. Now, They were over the tops of the cliffs, and in a few minutes, the valley of the land of Narnia had sunk out of sight behind them. They were flying over a wild country, 
with steep hills and dark forests still following the course of the river. The really big mountains loomed ahead, but the sun was now in travelers' eyes, and they couldn't see things very clearly in that direction. For the sun sank lower and lower till the western sky was all like one great furnace full of melted gold, and it set against the jet behind the jagged peak, which stood up against the brightness as sharp and flat as if it were cut out of cardboard. It's none too warm up here, said Polly, and my wings are beginning to ache, said Fledge. There's no sign of the valley with a lake in it, like what Eslan said. What about coming down and looking out for a decent spot to spend the night in? We shan't reach that place tonight. Yes, it's surely about time for supper, said Digger. So Fledge came lower and lower. They came down nearer to the earth among the hills. The air grew warmer after traveling so many hours with nothing to listen but the beat of Fledge's wings. It was nice to hear the homely and earthly noises again. The chatter of the river on its stony bed and the creaking of the trees in the light wind. A warm, good smell of the sun-baked earth and the grass and the floors came up to them. At last, Fledge alighted. Deirdre rolled off and helped Polly to dismount. They were both glad to stretch their stiff legs. The valley in which they had come down was in the heart of the mountains. Snowy heights, one of them looking rose red in the reflection of the sunset, towered above them. I am hungry, said Diggory. Well, tuck in, said Fledge, taking a, a big mound full of grass. Dan rage, then he raised his head, still chewing with bits of grass sticking out on each side of his mouth like whiskers, and said, Come on, you two, don't be shy. There's plenty for us all. Uh... Canny grass, said Diggory. Mmm, 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 said Fledge, speaking with his mouth full. Well, mmm, don't know quite what you'll do then. Very good grass, too. Polly and Diggory stared at one another in dismay. Well, I do think someone might have arranged about a meal, said Diggory. I'm sure Aslan would have. If you'd ask him, said Fledge. Wouldn't we know without being asked, said Polly. I've got no doubt he would, said the horse, still with his mouth full. But I've got a sort of idea he likes to be asked. What on earth do we do, asked Diggory. I'm sure I don't know, said Fledge. Unless you try the um, grass. You might like it better than you think. Oh, don't be silly, said Polly, stamping her foot. Of course, humans can't eat grass. More than you can eat a mutton chop. For goodness sakes, don't talk about chops and things, said Diggory. It only makes it worse. Diggory and Polly had better take themselves home by ring and get something there. But he couldn't himself because he had promised to go straight on his message for Slan. And... If once he showed up again at home, anything might happen to prevent his going back. Polly said she wouldn't leave him, and Diggory said those jolly decent of her. I say, said Polly, I've still got the remains of that bag of toffee in my jacket. Be better than nothing. Yeah, a lot better, said Diggory. 
But be careful to get your hand into your pocket without touching the ring. This was a difficult and delicate job, but they managed it in the end. The little paper bag was squishy and squashy, and very sticky when they got it out. It was a lot more question of tearing the bags off the toffees and then getting the toffees out of the bag. Some grown-ups, you know how fussy they could be with that kind of sort of thing, would rather have gone without supper altogether and eaten than eaten those toffees. There was nine of there was nine of them all told. It was Digger who had a bright idea of eating four each and planting the ninth. He said, "If the bar of the lamppost turned into a light tree, why shouldn't this turn into a toffee tree?" So they dibbled a small hole in the turf and buried the, the piece of toffee. Then they ate their pieces, making them last as long as they could. It was a poor meal, even with all the paper. They couldn't help eating as well. When Fletch had quite finished his own excellent supper, he lay down. The children came and sat one on each side of him, leaning against his poor body. Then he spread a wing over them and made her really quite snug. As the bright young stars of that new world came out, they talked over something. How Diggory hoped to get something for his mother, and how, instead of that, he'd sent on his message. And they repeated to one another all the times by which they should know the places they were looking for. The blue lake and the hill with the garden on top of it. The talk was beginning to slow down as they got sleepy. And Polly sat up wide awake and said, Hush. Everyone listened as hard as they could. Perhaps it was only the wind in the tree, said Diggory presently. I'm not so sure, said Fledge. Anyways, wait. There it goes again, by Slan. It is something. The horse scrambled up to its feet with a great noise and a great appeal. The children were already on theirs. Fledge trotted to and fro, sniffing and whinnying. The children tiptoed his way on that, looking behind every bush and tree. They kept on thinking they saw things. And there was at one time when Polly was perfectly certain she had seen a tall, dark figure gliding away in a westerly direction. But they caught nothing, and in the end, Fledged lay down, and the children resnuggled, if that is the right word, under his wings. They went to sleep at once. Fledge stayed awake much longer, moving his ears to and fro into the darkness, and sometimes giving a little shiver with his skin, as if a fly landed on him. But he end too, he slept. Okay, so the next chapter is called Chapter. Th- the next chapter, which is chapter 13, is called An Unexpected Meeting.